Without further ado, let me introduce Katie Tullington. Um, Katie's going to be talking to us about navigating the insights economy. Katie, welcome. Thanks, Steve. Over to you, Katie. Awesome. Thanks, Steve. Um, well, thank you so much for having me this afternoon. I hope everyone's feeling really satisfied after having a bite to eat. Um, and thank you for spending some time with me this afternoon. I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respects to um, the Camarigal people, who are the traditional custodians of the land that I'm presenting to you from today, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and just share my gratitude for, for being able to present on this land. Um, so today's theory comes from my learnings as an anthropologist, but also as my experience working as a researcher, um, both in agency and in-house contexts. Uh, and currently I'm working as a UX researcher at Woolies X, which is the digital arm of Woolworths. So let's jump into it. Um, this idea really sparked when I was in a talk where there was an expert in their field speaking about um, what insights to present and how. And their argument was that there were two forms of truths. There were revelatory truths and there were this kind of regular truths. So truths, this presenter said, garner reactions such as interesting and we know that already. However, revelatory truths garner reactions such as wow, aha, give me more. And this really struck a nerve with me. And, and quite frankly, I really disagree with this sentiment. And the reason why I disagree with this is because I think that we really need to understand and communicate the landscape of consistent patterns to help us place new revelatory truths in context. And therefore, these revelatory uh, insights shouldn't be our only or even our primary focus when presenting back findings. Now, I couldn't quite shake this presentation. And as I sat with it, I thought more about why this presenter wanted to create this distinction um, between the, these truths and these revelatory truths. And as I thought about it, I reflected on some situations that I have also been in, uh, in the past where I felt particular pressures from stakeholders, from clients to deliver insights, which are game changers, sweeps them off their feet. And this was particularly prevalent when I worked in an agency where we were being paid uh, to bring new information to the table to drive innovation. And I realised what this presenter was really speaking to was an incentivized system or an economy to show up with these punchy, wow, aha moments to satisfy their stakeholders, their, their project sponsors, and ultimately to make a trade. So by providing what is perceived as a high-value item, the revelatory insight, in return what is traded is access, is continued engagement uh, and trust, and that's trust to deliver value and indirectly to continue to have the opportunity to prove value, to prove the value of, of research. So enter this theory um, around the insights economy. So before I go any further, I thought there would be value in providing my definition of what an insight is. Um, I think it'll help frame the conversation a little bit more. And frankly, I've critiqued someone else's way of explaining um, how to present insights. So I thought I'd offer this up. So I take this um, definition from Martha Cotton, a thought leader um, in the research space. And I've used this um, for many years now. Um, and essentially, it's defining what an insight is by a, a grouping of observations that form a clear theme that is IRA that is interesting, relevant, and actionable. And while you might have a ton of observations from your research, you'll only have a handful of insights. 
So let's look at this. So the interesting, the interesting is, is you're finding a pattern that's worth calling out. It might be interesting to your team. It might reveal something unknown, but it also might be reinforcing something known. Um, relevancy. So it's context is needed for this project. It's relevant to your field of reference. It's relevant to your project and your client goals. And then actionable. So it either provides insights into a pain point or provides an opportunity or, or just offers an action, a next step or, or something to kind of continue thinking about. So what I'm going to be talking about is how we've arrived at this insights economy. Where has this come from? How has this pressurised system to incentivize our stakeholders with juicy insights formed? And what are we going to do about it? So in order to get a good grasp on the insights economy, I think we need to look at where we've come from to understand how this is formed. And really interesting to see in other presentations, um, especially yesterday, that we did have a couple of timelines. So it's interesting to stitch them all up. So I've kind of been looking at, at research in commercial contexts and looking at that over a scale of, of you know, 60 plus years um, and observing that the role of the researcher throughout this time has really changed. Um, and as you can see here, my suggestion is so too has the demand for research. And as we know, with the law of supply and demand, it's a very careful balance to strike. So initially, we were incredibly product focused. We were thinking about how does the product work in its context? What features can we advertise to sell to consumers? And you can see an example here of a rye crisp ad, which is for a poor substitute for bread, frankly. And it's all about that woman being able to meet the male gaze. Following this uh, was the acknowledgement or perhaps the revelation that it was more about the brand and not about the product itself. So here we saw the creation of brand archetypes in marketing or the creation of characters such as the maiden form woman um, or perhaps the Marlboro man is more familiar. And now this has evolved to an extraordinarily customer-focused world, which we now recognise as human-centred thinking or design. And as we've spoken about and, and heard about in this conference, that's almost evolving again now as we really think about the planet. Um, but really, it's an acknowledgement that consumers don't exist in a vacuum. So I think this Apple ad is a really great example of thinking about a product in terms of the context of, of a customer and, and what they do in their lives. Um, and so ultimately, we, we now build experiences around this. So what's influencing this insights economy? There's a couple of things going on. And within that evolution, we saw an increase in the demand for research. Our frame of reference has gone from product focus to what can be a huge frame of reference. So if you think about my situation as a researcher working at Woolworths, um, we're talking about, you know, anyone that thinks about consuming groceries, buys groceries, um, anyone in that ecosystem. So how do we go about fulfilling the needs of all of these people? How do we understand all of those different contexts? Um, and how do we honour that human-centred design approach while making those considerations? So the demand for research increases. Also driving this demand is the recognition um, of the value of research. Um, and this has really increased. We've often speak about researchers working for a seat at the table, and we've seen a shift in, in the makeup of our product teams and the inclusion uh, of additional research-focused roles. Um, certainly UX researcher wasn't something on my radar when I first started out as a UX designer, but as the demand has increased, the more opportunities have grown for this role. And so because of that, the research has become recognised uh, and acknowledged as this expert on culture. And that's a term that there's an anthropologist called Lucy Suchman, um, and she works in commercial contexts. And she says that we're working within culture industries. 
where we're trading expert knowledge. So we're fueling this economy with our findings and we're able to trade these findings because we're trusted as experts. So in this increased demand, so too grows this pressure cooker environment, which frankly researchers can't service. And it brings us back to that concept of supply and demand. So when demand outgrows the supply, we experience this loss of equilibrium. How do you create additional supply to contribute to this economy? And what does it mean when we aren't balanced between our demand and supply? Well, if I can bring you back to that story that I referred to at the beginning of my talk, where this presenter who didn't identify as a researcher per se, they were a thought leader in a different field, but they were manifesting the effects of what intense pressure of this research demand can have we get someone who's determining that we need to focus on delivering revelatory truths and wowing our stakeholders, as opposed to using that opportunity as a thought leader to discuss how we deliver quality insights and findings, which truly reflect the landscape of their observation. And that's something that we know um, in best research practices. So to point to a conclusion or perhaps a revolution in navigating this economy, this is where we really need to see uh, and where we are seeing the democratization of research practices. We need to acknowledge the power of the collective uh, and really scale our research practices. And not just by getting more people to do the work, because we know there's always teething problems with democratization, um, but instead by educating and empowering people to do the work well or robustly. Again, we've had conversations already about what does it actually mean to democratise our practice? Where could we kind of let that flow and where do we need to put some guardrails up? So then as the role of research falls onto others who perhaps are learning as they go, the value of the currency, the insight, can't be jeopardised. So we don't want to have situations where someone's believing and educating others that insights exist to wow your stakeholders. We don't want to see our currency being cheapened. So let's take a, back, a step back for a moment. I've spoken about how the, the demand for research has increased. Amazing. Research practices are being recognised. Awesome. Uh, researchers are being valued and we're being recognised. How good does all of that sound? However, I've also pointed to the negative effect that this can have we can lose some of our best research practices in place of churning out insights to meet the demands of our stakeholders. Instead, we end up kind of impressing them with vanity insights, um, which are garnering reactions, but they're not driving true meaningful change or innovation. So how are we going to navigate this? Really, I believe it's down to upholding best research practices and by making some practical considerations along the research journey. So whoever it is that might be doing that research, whether they're an expert on culture or not, they can be sure that they're positively contributing to this insights economy whilst meeting the demand and their stakeholders are actually benefiting from that person doing the research and they can feel really empowered to interpret findings. So let's talk about how to navigate this economy and what some of those practical considerations uh, could be for researchers and for non-researchers, frankly, for anyone who is collecting or consuming research findings. So I think, firstly, it's important to acknowledge that the insights economy exists because then we can work within this economy and be conscious of the triggers or the things that might send you down an unhelpful path. And then once we've acknowledged it, we can, you know, do like what we do in, in any economy and, and use our knowledge to our advantage. 
and continue to prove the value and ultimately get those better outcomes for participants, for our customers, for whoever our end user is. So I'm going to start with some overall um, practice level recommendations and then dive a little bit deeper into the phases of research. So the first point uh, is about identifying how and where to bring value. So feeding back into a research brief when a research requirement is established is incredibly important. And there needs to be an understanding that saying no is just as important as saying yes. So let's focus on calling out knowledge gaps and problem statements rather than hearing requests for validated solutions. And when there is a misunderstanding or, or even a research brief which you don't believe that you could service, um, or perhaps it could be um, serviced better by a different team, um, call that out. Selected input is about being that filter between the research requester and the research outcome. And if there's no filter or any guidance provided at this point, it can lead to some really sticky situations down the track where findings might be misused, misinterpreted, or just frankly perceived not to hit the mark. The second point at a practice level is around educating and empowering your company. And you can do this by setting expectations. So use those research skills that you have to really understand the way that your peers are hunting for and interpreting knowledge and challenge those processes if you believe them to be unrealistic or maybe resulting in some misinterpretation. So I'll touch on the interpretation of insights again when I talk through some tips for presenting your findings back. But at a practice level, Whenever there is a conversation around inside interpretation or considerations around a new project that might need research, use that as an opportunity to reiterate how those insights will and maybe more importantly, won't contribute. So let's talk about the, uh, the planning phase of the research project. This is undoubtedly, I believe, the most important phase, my favourite phase. It could be the Virgo in me. Um, but initially I spoke to the pressurized system that I observed that speaker behaving in. And it's important to acknowledge that that pressure cooker environment is really determined in this planning phase. So there's a couple of things that you can do to really ensure that that pressure doesn't affect the project and expectations upfront. So the first thing that I do um, in a research project is hold a research kickoff. And this is really centered around understanding the scope of the requirements and identifying key goals, um, which will help you determine what the best approach for that research would be. So in the kickoff, you want to establish what we know, what we don't know, and why we need to know that. So in that kickoff, I, I often come with a drafted research plan, which has my assumptions uh, kind of baked into that plan. And that assists with some open communications, weeding out any sneaking bias that may have been embedded in the initial project requirements. And then there's a couple of things I'll do. So in the kickoff, I'll determine the landscape of knowledge. So I'll find out, you know, is this something that we already know? And therefore, what are the current knowledge gaps? I'll think about the boundaries of the scope. So thinking about whether, um, you know, in my case, if I was uh, researching how customers feel around a particular service and what kind of value they receive, I'll ask, what are the services that I might exclude from my exploration? Or is there a particular customer group that we're focusing on? And this will really mean when you present your findings back, that second point around relevancy contributing to the formation of an insight will be really true when we think about the IRA. So this is also a really great moment to reinforce the role of research in the project and set expectations for stakeholders. Um, and so you want them to understand um, that 
you know, there to be involved in this piece of research. So I'll always call out that research is a team sport um, and really set those expectations that um, research-related conversations or sessions with participants require whole team attendance where possible. Um, I also encourage them to facilitate and note-take, and this just really helps you with that second practice-level uh, recommendation. And that's about educating and empowering um, non-researchers on research best practices to make sure that we're contributing to that economy in a positive way. The other point here is around a prioritization activity. Um, and it's really relevant for circumstances where the demand is incredibly high and it just simply can't be serviced with the available supply. So I'll hold a prioritization session with key st stakeholders to weed out irrelevant research and really prioritize my research requirements. Um, and that just helps me make sure that I'm doing the most impactful work. So this can also mean aligning objectives across mo multiple research requirements and streamlining that process a little bit. So often I'll find I can service multiple requests at one time if I do this kind of exercise. So I've included a few prompts here to ask. So the things that I ask are, are the objectives related to um, expected outcomes and how? Um, is the research um, needed to make decisions on current unknowns? And what are those unknowns? Will the, income, the outcomes of this study impact a significant proportion of users? And if so, how will it impact? And what's the business implications of that? And then also the, um, the favourite question, what's the timeline? And if they say they need it yesterday, well, that's a fun conversation to have. Um, so during these two exercises, it's all about drawing your line of observation. It's ensuring that the expectations are set and that assumptions have been identified. Ultimately, using this stage as an opportunity to set yourself up for success when it comes time to execute. And so let's talk about that execution. I won't focus too much on this stage, recognising there's a lot of experience um, at the conference, but ultimately it's about upholding best practices and just remembering who we are and what our responsibility is as the active participants in this economy. So three things to consider. Think about your positioning. So we've, we've done the setting expectations with our stakeholders, but it's, we now need to do that with ourselves. So you're the researcher and in your position, you're relied upon to do the good work that you do to get that outcome. However, we don't want to go um, hunting for the punchy insights or have that end result in the back of our mind. Instead, this stage is about the research process. It's about assessing the landscape and taking it all in. The findings will come. Now's not the time to be creating them. The second point is all about calibrating your focus. So when you're entering into conversations with your participants, don't be thinking about the presentation you have to present on Friday or that playback with your stakeholder this afternoon. Really respect the process and shift your mindset to be really present in the session, to be able to observe what's going on. So I use mindful practices um, to really kind of get into the mode of my session. I'll do box breathing or take a quiet moment just to kind of put all of the noise aside and make sure that I'm really present. And the third point is just around surveying the context. So thick description, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with. Um, it's a term used to characterise the process of paying attention to contextual detail. Um, but the other point is around adapting that control loss of control, allowing your participants to provide context in their conversations with you. Um, so this might look like some grounding exercises or some recall exercises, not so much about how would you use it, more like how have you used it or kind of embed this idea in, in a previous time. So it's all about understanding from the participant's point of view. And finally, we have presenting. So equally as important as planning, um, but the main key here is around framing that context. 
So challenging assumptions. As researchers, we're trained to do this, but this small detail often gets forgotten at the presenting phase. So use this opportunity to engage with your audience when you're presenting findings. When you step into the conversation, ask, what do they think they're going to hear today? And by doing that, it becomes more of a conversation and you can identify how much context you actually might need to establish up front before you dive in. Also making that process relevant. So just showing the tip of the iceberg really does our practice a disservice and it leaves way too much room for misinterpretation. So refer back to that kickoff that you did up front and point to those goals and objectives that um, you established with the team. It'll really help your audience place those insights that you share back, particularly if they're not feeling wowed. They'll understand why they're hearing this information, be able to kind of connect the dots. And finally, making that knowledge relevant. So if it's not a wow insight, use context to embed the insight into their field of reference and offer recommendations and next actions. It'll really give your insights some validity. You know, avoid presenting an isolated insight. Really make sure that you're placing it in context and, and that it's really actionable and explaining why it's important. Remember that IRA, interesting, relevant and actionable. So hopefully that provides you with some considerations to make around your team's approach to research, as well as some extra considerations to make during your research process. So I think as a final reflection on the insights economy, it's important to acknowledge all the work that we've actually done to get to this place, the way we can call it an economy, um, and call out the opportunities uh, that participation in this economy can really bring to the continued growth of our practice. So thank you so much for listening in, and please reach out if you'd like to discuss anything further. Ed, thanks so much. It's um, uh, always like a, a, a critical part of the design research process, how like how our insights are framed, how they're delivered. Um, there's nothing worse than sitting in a room um, with clients and with stakeholders and, you know, delivering the results of your work and everyone sort of sitting there going... Blank face, yeah. <laughs> so what? Okay. But it's also something we hear we, we hear a lot, which is that well, we've had research conducted in the past, um, but we haven't really known what to do with it. Um, and I think that's a you know like a, a, a real waste that there's probably wonderful material sitting there that hasn't landed and, and hasn't been enacted um, as a result. So that was wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks, Steve.